Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, and welcome to The Rest is History. Dominic Sandbrook here. Now, after the death of Mikhail Gorbachev um, a couple of days ago, quite a few of our listeners have been on Twitter and email and asking us if we would do a special bonus episode on Gorbachev, on the fall of the Soviet Union, and his legacy and his meaning in Russia today. Well, we have tremendous news for those people and for any of our newer listeners. The truth is we have already done a whole mini-series about Mikhail Gorbachev, about Boris Yeltsin, the fall of the USSR, and the subsequent rise of Vladimir Putin and how that led to the war in Ukraine. So that was four episodes, and we released them a while ago. And to make things easier, what we've done is we've stitched together the first two episodes into a longer special, and that looks at the world in which Gorbachev became the General Secretary of the Soviet Union, uh, his early life, his experiences abroad, his vision for the USSR, what he was trying to achieve, how that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and so on, his relationship with Boris Yeltsin, and how all of that fed into Vladimir Putin's Russia and the situation that we see today. So please enjoy this. If you like what you hear, and if you want to catch up on the rest of the miniseries, then just search Rest is History 161 Yeltsin and Putin, or click on the link in the episode notes. And in the meantime, enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and uh, we would like to go over to Crawford, Texas, where we are joined by a special guest. I'll answer the question. I looked the man in the eye. I found it to be very straightforward and trustworthy. Uh, we had a very good dialogue. I was able to um, get a sense of his soul. He's a man deeply committed to his country and the best interests of his country, uh, and I appreciated so very much the frank dialogue. There was no kind of diplomatic chit-chat trying to throw each other off balance. There was uh, a straightforward dialogue, and that's the beginning of a very constructive relationship. Um, I wouldn't have invited him to my ranch if I didn't trust him. That was my brilliant impression of George W. Bush. It wasn't actually... No, that was re- that really was George Bush. That was George. That was our first presidential guest, uh, and that was the occasion in two thousand and one of his first meeting with uh, President Vladimir Putin. In light of the current situation, um, we thought that it would be interesting to look at some of the historical context. We've already done an episode on the history of Ukraine, but we thought that it would be, you know, I mean, essentially everyone is asking, how did we get here? What is it that's yeah. prompted Putin to do what he's doing? Um, you know, what, what is the background? What, what is there an explanation for it that can be discovered in, in history, I suppose, and in his specifically in his biography, this is a field that you are much, much more familiar with than I am, but I, I guess I lived through it. So a lot of it. Yeah. I think Tom, there's that apocryphal saying by Napoleon, isn't there? That if you, um, know the world, if if you've studied the world, when a man was 20, you, you know how his mind works. And, um, Vladimir Putin, like any Russian of his generation, he's born in 1952, has lived through the most colossal, almost unimaginable political, economic kind of social changes in the former Soviet Union and, and Russia. And if we, and it's only by understanding what's happened to him and his country, I think, that you can actually get get into his 
into his well attempt to get into his head and to understand why Russia is now as it is so now it's becoming you know it appears to be becoming this pariah state kind of shut off behind a new iron curtain of sanctions how on earth has it got here and that's what we're going to try and try and investigate I mean, Dominic, you're of course, it, it's been an absolutely convulsive period of change, but there is also always the historians uh, question change or continuity. And you could say, I mean, people have been saying that actually not that much has changed, that the Soviet Union was a, a political system founded on lies, founded on a, a profound suspicion of the outside, uh, founded on an emphasis on military prowess over everything else. And you could say that Russia today is showing, you know, much the same. Is the air of that. Yeah, I don't, that. normally I'm a great determinist in this podcast, but I don't think that's really true, actually. I think that misses, um, you know, obviously Putin himself is a product of the Soviet system, which we'll go into in a second. But I think when you actually go through the period of change, you see that there were alternative paths that Russia could have taken. And and Russia isn't fated to be this sort of right um, violent, you know, nationalistic kind of hellhole that, that that so many people imagine. You know, what happened in the in the in the USSR in the 1980s and then in Russia in the 1990s, there were all kinds of contingencies and twists and and so on. And there were alternative futures for Russia, as we will see. But just just before we go uh, to, to look at um, the last decade of the Soviet Union. You talked about the idea that that Russia wasn't fated to become what it is now, but that idea of fate, the idea that Russia has a particular destiny, I mean, that is something that is very strong in Russian culture and actually much older, of course, than communism. Yeah, the sort of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, well, I mean, there are two different things on there, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, but the sort of the idea of Russia having this almost, as you would say, Tom, this almost kind of sacral destiny, you know, the, the third Rome. Um, the home of orthodoxy, kind of on the edge of Europe, half in Europe, half out. I mean, that is very deeply rooted in Russia's sense of itself, the sense of embattlement, um, a sense, a, a distrust of the outside, but also a fascination with it. Um, so yes, all those things are 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 there, but there is a sort of slightly stereotypical way we talk about Russia. So we always talk about, I mean, even George Bush did it there when he talked about knowing Putin's the soul. soul. Yes. The idea of the Russians having a soul that you must understand that is incredibly deep and dark. I mean, nobody says that about, you know... Um, uh, Belgium. Yeah, Belgium. <laughs> no, nobody says that about Belgium. Maybe Bart Van Loo, our previous guest, would say but that. But also, about I mean, people, today, when you apply the word exceptionalism to countries, it's generally... A pejorative. So people are very sniffy about the idea that there might be British exceptionalism or French exceptionalism. Or American Even though yeah. clearly, you know, I mean, they are all very exceptional countries. But in Russia, it seems to be something that yes. is pretty fundamental to the way that uh, not just Russian politicians, but large numbers of people within the country think of Russia. Would yes. you say that's fair or they, am I stereotyping? I think it, I think it abs- no, I think it probably is fair. I think that's the way that a lot of Russians are, are told to think about themselves, that they have an exceptional, um, a unique past and a kind of exceptional destiny. And that uh, we do think of Russia typically as having an exceptional character. Outsiders do. And that's all that stuff about the Russian soul and about, you know, Russians are terribly kind of warm people, but they're, but they're also that the price of human life is lower and all that sort of thing that you hear so often. Um Yes. So I think there is a kind of exceptionalism, both projected from the outside, but also believed inside. I mean, it was expressed 
very unsettlingly by Putin, and I may be paraphrasing him here, and I, you know, this may be um, disinformation, but didn't he say something to the effect, talking with, with regard to nuclear weapons, that um, a, a world without Russia wouldn't be a world? You know, why should the why should the world exist if, if it exists without Russia. Russia? Yes, and not only has he said that, by the way, but um, his kind of mouthpieces on Russian state television have used exactly the same line. So that's yeah, a well worn line actually, in the sort of Putinist ideology. Right. Okay, so a bit unsettling yeah. coming from people with the largest quantity of <laughs> nuclear, nuclear weapons, weapons on the face of the planet. But um, something that, as we said, can be traced back to the Tsarist period, but obviously gets a particular refinement under communism, where what had been the Russian Empire becomes the Soviet Union. Yeah. And as the Soviet Union is one of two superpowers and sees itself charged with a, a historical destiny, it is the midwife of world communism. That has sustained it throughout decades of transformation and upheaval. By the 70s, when Putin is coming of age, that sense of purpose and of destiny perhaps is starting to fade. Uh, it's the age yeah. of Brezhnev, a man with kind of insanely huge eyebrows and, you and a kind of eyebrows. rigor mortis stance, <laughs> yes. isn't it? I mean, they're all kind of basically dead. They are constantly getting colds, but yeah. keep them in their beds for five years. Uh, they wear nothing but overcoats. They wear things under the overcoats, Tom. Do they? they I've never seen any evidence for that. <laughs> um, um, yeah, you're right. So It's always Putin. snowing. So what's going <laughs> so, on? So Putin is born in uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg in 1952, and he's from a working class family. His parents work in a factory. Um, and he goes to Leningrad State University in uh, 1970, I think, and he's there for five years. And so so he comes of age in the Brezhnev era, as you say. Um, and it's an age of, it, it's, it is not an age of revolutionary zeal at all. So you mentioned communism and, and, and um, a sort of sense of, of communist zeal, but that really isn't what typifies the Brezhnev regime. The Brezhnev regime is all about stability and there's a kind of ordinariness to it. So for most people who are alive in the Soviet Union at that point, the Soviet Union is all they've ever known. Um, and everybody in the world, you know, in America, in Britain, in Western Europe, and in the Soviet Union, thinks the Soviet Union is going to probably be around forever. You know, it is, as you say, one of the two superpowers. Um, it's sclerotic. Uh, the economy is producing enough to keep people happy. So they're fed. They've actually got more consumer goods than ever before. Um, you know, Robert Service in his history of Russia says, uh, one, I think he uses the phrase, most Russian workers had never had it so good as they had it in the 1970s. So they've got fridges, they go on holiday there. You know, life's okay. But relatively, relatively, they've never had it. I mean, they've never had it so good, but relative to the capitalist West. Of course, it's falling Economically, further. they're starting to fall behind. For, for, and... and the, the prosperity, the apparent prosperity of the 70s is based on a fiction. So it's based on a sclerotic, com incredibly complicated, top-down um, sort of system, you know, the sort of parodies of sort of state planning and tractor statistics and all that stuff. They're all, they're all rooted in truth. But it's also rooted in high oil prices. So high world, they're almost living a bit of, a, a bit of an illusion because when the oil price falls in the 1980s, that's going to pull the rug out from the from the system. And Brezhnev, as you say, I mean, he's not Stalin. You know, he's nothing like Stalin. He's not, it's still a very autocratic system. It's one that represses dissidents and shoves them into psychiatric hospitals, but it doesn't kill lots of people. Um, so life kind of, you know, goes on. And for a young man like Putin, his ambition is to join the KGB. 
um, supposedly he applies to join and they say to him, you don't apply, you know, we contact you. But they kind of make a note of him because they know that he's loyal and hardworking and all this sort of stuff. Um, so for him, he thinks he's going to be, he thinks he's joining the intelligence service of one of, the, of, of, of the, actually the world's great power. Because the 1970s is a terrible decade for the kind of the United States. It's the decade of Nixon and Carter and Vietnam and this sort of introspection. And the Soviet Union, there's a sort of sense that the Soviet Union might even be winning the Cold War. Burying them. Burying them, as yes, as Khrushchev said to, said to Nixon. So there's this sort of false, false image, I think, that people have about their own society in the 70s. And there are some people at the top of the Soviet regime so in particular, the man who's going to succeed Brezhnev, who's a man called Yuri Andropov, who is the head of the KGB. There are some people who know that there are deep problems, that Russia has, you know, I say Russia, the Soviet Union has huge problems with alcoholism, with absenteeism, um, that its birth rate is, is struggling, um, that, you know, high rates of corruption, all these kinds of things. Um, but Putin doesn't see this as a young man, I wouldn't have said. Well, two questions. First of all, Putin... Is he a committed communist as a young man or is he a committed nationalist? What's the balance there? If you read sort of his semi-official biography, it says that he reads, you know, he enjoys reading Marxist-Leninist books when he's at, he's at school. I mean, I think it's a bit like Christianity, Tom. Is it? You, it is in this <laughs> oh. sense. In this sense, there's a difference between being a Christian in the second century AD and being a Christian in the 16th century when everybody's a Christian and you know, mm. you're not a radical. You're not a rebel. You're not necessarily. Well, you might be in the 16th century. Yeah, but you might not be. You might not. You might be a good Christian, but none of those things. You might yeah. just be an apparatchik. And um, I think he's a communist in the sense that he's listened to everything he's been told, and that provides his framework. But I don't think he's a. I don't think he burns with the zeal of social mm -hmm. justice or, or with revolutionary enthusiasm. Okay. Or I don't. I, actually, Tom, I don't think. I think a lot of the people who are running the show don't burn with revolutionary zeal. Okay, that was my other question. But uh, I think before I ask that, let's take a quick break. You were just saying uh, before the break that um, a lot of the people at the top of the Soviet Union are not burning with kind of revolutionary communist zeal. And the question I asked you was on Andropov. He's the guy who, who notoriously has the cold. It lasts for what kind of four years, three years, or something? I mean, he's in. I mean, basically, he's incapacitated for the whole period of his term of as general his, secretary. Of his, yes, and then he's succeeded by Chenenko, who is kind of, in many ways, even more moribund. Are yeah. these are these guys people who apps? You know, so Andropov is a very smart guy. He recognizes the Soviet Union has huge problems. Is he a believer though? He he doesn't question the system. He just thinks that the system needs a bit of tinkering. You know, apply the spanner here, a bit of oil there, and it will tick along fine. Uh, he doesn't question the mission, I suppose, is what I would say. Um, so, I mean, Chernenko, he's a hack. He's just a party hack. Andropov is, is clever. He was the Soviet ambassador, I think, in um, Hungary during the Budapest uprising. So he, he has taken from that a belief that you have to be, you have to be strong. You know, you have to suppress dissent. You can't let things. But he also has taken a belief that um, you have to get in ahead. So... You know, you can't let yourself get in a situation where thousands of people are in the streets. You have to keep changing the system to make it yeah. work. Um, so I don't think Andropov is in He's very severe. He's very strict. He's very anti-corruption. Um, and he's clever. And he has read forbidden books. And he, as Soviets, sort of the, the top brass are allowed to do. 
they're expected to do is to inform themselves. And he's surrounded himself with aides who are relatively free thinking. But he's still, I mean, everybody there believes in them that their model must triumph. And they believe they're in a global competition with this, with the United States. Absolutely. Yeah. And so he is, you know, he said he was head of the KGB. He's general secretary during the kind of the coldest days of the, of the Cold War in the early 80s. Yes. So he, he is the guy who's in charge when Reagan is lambasting the Soviet Union as evil, evil empire. empire. Yeah. And it's 99 red balloons and two tribes. Which is very frightening, kind of by the way, for the Soviet leadership. They, they think the Americans are going to attack them. Well, I mean, we did a podcast about this with Taylor Downing um, about nuclear war. They absolutely are terrified that the Americans are going to attack them first. Um, but yeah, so Andropov takes over. Brezhnev dies. I mean, Brezhnev basically died multiple times uh, and was literally brought back from the dead. Um, you know, he's sort of resuscitated and dragged around as this sort of embalmed figure in the late 1970s. Andropov succeeds in November 82 and is there till February 84. And as you said, he's basically ill the whole time. I mean, they literally, you know, the, on one side of his bed, there'll be the man with the nuclear briefcase. And the other side of his bed will be the nurse who's keeping him alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he dies. Now, the person he wants to succeed him is the crucial figure in this podcast. And for Putin, a figure of of utter ignominy and shame in Russian history, as indeed he is for a lot of Russians. And that man is Mikhail Gorbachev. That's the man that Andropov wants to take over. But he doesn't. He's too young. So the other people in the Politburo, they they bypass him and they get this old hack, Chernenko, who is another sort of... I mean, he's dying when he takes over. And he's there from February 84 to the spring of 85. So what was it about Gorbachev that Andropov had seen? That's 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 a really good question. So Gorbachev is a generation younger. He's the youngest guy, I think, pretty much on the uh, Politburo. He joins in 1918. He's 49, which is incredibly young by the standards of the Soviet leadership. And he has a glamorous wife. He does, right? He's a very clever wife, who's a very important, I mean, hugely important figure for him. His chief advisor. I mean, his real, uh, his real soulmate. Um, so Gorbachev is from a place called Stavropol. He's from a little village called, what's it called? Privolnoye, I think it's called. Um and he's from peasant stock. He's bright. He's, he's super bright. He's gone to Moscow State University. And I think he's read law. He's got uh, a birthmark on his, uh, on his head. He does indeed. Important. He's travelled. So he's been abroad. He even went on a three-week driving holiday in France with Raisa. And they sort Did of he? drove around France and said, and said, um, God, you know, this place is so much better than the <laughs> Soviet Union. You know, this is the sort of classic thing that often happens when people are posted to the West. Um he actually, one of his chief aides, one of his chief advisors is a man called Alexander Yakovlev, who had been ambassador to Canada and, and basically had exactly the same kind of crisis yeah. of confidence. You know, he got to Canada and was like, oh my God, this place is great. Um, but when uh, Gorbachev becomes general secretary, yeah. he, he's still a believer. I mean, he just because he's, he's got nice camembert in France, it doesn't right. mean that Absolutely, he thinks- Tom. Absolutely, he's a believer. He is, he is idealistic. And this is one of the great problems with Gorbachev. Now, Gorbachev is a fascinating character because, of course, everybody listening to this by and large, will think, oh, Gorby, nice guy, you know, Nobel Peace Prize winner, top man. Of course, in Russia, he is regarded with absolute contempt. And I have to say, when you when you start to dig into the story and you think about Gorbachev in a, in a slightly more detached way, I mean, we've done a lot of weak and failed leaders on this podcast, and although it pains me to say it because he's an admirable man in so many ways, I mean, but when he leaves office, he's only in there for six years. And when he leaves, his his country has completely and utterly fallen apart. Now, some people would say that's because the problems are too great. But I think Gorbachev, I think almost all historians, actually, who really work on this, 
people like uh, Robert Service or Vladislav Zubok, who wrote a brilliant book called Collapse um, that came out last year, The Fall of the Soviet Union, they would just say Gorbachev is a complete and utter disaster. Why? He's idealistic, Tom. He's, he's bright. He and Racer have, have spent loads of time talking about the future of the Soviet Union. They like talking to other kind of intellectually kind of people. Um, Gorbachev is also very canny. Um, so he's been able to get up the kind of greasy pole. He's um, powerful patrons like Andropov think a lot of him. He says to Racer when he joins the, I think it's when he joined the Politburo, he said, um, we can't live like this any longer. And he's determined to fix the system. But he goes about fixing it in such a politically incompetent. I mean, it, I, again, it slightly pains me to say it. Um, but he, he fixes it in such an inept way that absolutely everything gets worse. He does too much, too quickly, too many different areas, and, and everything falls apart. And you said, what is he a believer? He's absolutely a believer. So uh, Vladislav Zubot brings this out really well in his book. He says, you know, Gorbachev is obsessed with Lenin. I mean, this is so much like that. You're parallel with your Christianity stuff about people who, you know, people who would kind of Oliver Cromwell or somebody reading the Bible to guide mm -hmm. them. Gorbachev has Lenin's sort of works on his desk and he will sort of dip into them in the way that people sometimes dip into the Bible. He will dip into them to try and get inspiration for what he needs to do. And he becomes convinced, he is convinced that the Soviet Union has taken a wrong turn since the 1920s, and it needs to get back to Lenin's vision. He idealizes Lenin, and he thinks Lenin had a vision. It's a more democratic, free, open, creative. And if I can get back to that, we'll establish true communism, and, and then we'll turn this sort of sinking ship around, if you can turn the sinking ship around. So sense. that's that's quite a kind of abstract sense of mission. But I maybe I've got this wrong, but I thought that he was also focused on a very specific problem which was that uh, the Soviet economy was massively distorted by defense spending. So yeah. they, they're spending, what, 20, 25%? No, it's probably not. To, that's actually been exaggerated. It's about 15%, I think, is the but latest still estimate. quite a lot. It is, and but it's... If, he's going to, if they're going to, you know, guns to butter, yeah. then they need to make things up with the West. So he does that very effectively. I mean, he's very good at that. Yes. He, he, he definitely kind of removes the chill from the Cold War very yes. effectively. So, which is why people in the West, you know, rate him so highly. But as someone who is ideologically committed to Marxist-Leninism, I mean, isn't it a, de a definition of the job that kind of trying to construct an economy that will provide Soviet citizens with all the kind of consumer durables and gizmos that you get in the West is bound to fail. I mean, it's, there's just no way it can be done. No, I don't agree with that. I don't agree, actually don't agree with either of those things. So first of all, the defense spending, um, that has become a very comforting myth that the West tells itself about the Soviet Union, that, I mean, particularly in America, that we crippled, we won the Cold War by increasing defense spending so much that they couldn't keep up. But most historians, I think, would now say they could keep up. I mean, they had defense it. spending. Yeah, they'd done it since the forties. They could they could have carried on doing it. I mean, that defense spending is not what brings the Soviet Union down. Second point, I forgot what your second point was, Tom. Um, oh, consumer durables. Well, there is a very good example of a communist country that has, you know, embraced a consumer China. economy. And that's China, and the Chinese. I mean, Deng Xiaoping supposedly said something to the effect of somebody. His son asked him what he thought of Gorbachev, and he said, "I think Gorbachev's a complete idiot." Um, yes, but this is communism with Chinese characteristics, which basically means a kind of freedom to ignore 
aspects of communism that don't gel with with making money but but leninism absolutely did i mean leninism was all about kind of collectivization but Tom, it's all I think about most suppression hist- of private enterprise but i think most historians would say well first of all that's not what gorbachev himself thinks he thinks lenin's new economic policy in the 1920s after the russian civil war did allow some space for limited private enterprise and that they can move towards a mixed economy um i think that one of the big problems with the soviet union is it's become so reliant on imports paid for with oil revenue and it's completely failed to develop its own kind of consumer industries okay. so it's like saudi arabia with snow <laughs> a bit is that what the saudi what do they do do they spend their raw money on snow <laughs> no but i mean it's the saudi you know it's notoriously um economies that have lots of oil yeah. tend to be dysfunctional well yes iran is a good example from the 70s we talked about iran a lot in previous podcasts um and i think yes it's incredibly dysfunctional i mean it's unbelievably complicated economy uh no one i mean when gorbachev is given they're, they're talking about this thing called the law of state enterprise which is going to be this law that's going to allow a little bit of more freedom for factories to keep their money and to invest it and that sort of thing gorbachev says at one point you know i basically don't understand this and, and nobody really <laughs> understands. Well, I, I, I feel sympathy. I mean, yeah, basically, see, he's, Tom, trying to, he's trying to amend a, a, a machine for which there is no instruction manual. I think there's a, there's a degree of that. Um, but I think he's also, you see, the thing is, he's trying to mend this machine, which has incredibly complicated kind of supply chain networks. And, and it has this weird cashless system that enterprises use with each other, whereas citizens use cash and you can't change one to the other. I mean, it's completely mad. But that's the way – it's a bit like any massive sclerotic institution. Once you start to fiddle with it, it becomes very difficult to stop it from falling apart. But the other thing is he combines this with a – so he has the perestroika, which is restructuring, which kind mm-hmm. of has political and economic developments. But he combines it with glasnost, which is openness. That openness. Yes. And that's in the wake of Chernobyl. So Chernobyl – the explosion at Chernobyl is in April 1986. And after that, Gorbachev thinks, well, I need to, I need to increase the speed. We need to have more newspapers. We need to have more discussion. And why is it? Why, why does Chernobyl have that effect on him? Because I think he's he's shocked by the incompetence, um, by the cover-ups, by the ineptitude of the managers, by the way the atomic industry has been run, by their lies, all of that kind of stuff. You know, Gorbachev, of course, he's complicit in covering it up a bit because he's the general secretary and he kind of feels like he has to, but he still thinks okay, we need to, you know, we just need to be more open and we need to be more creative. Crucially, one of the things he does now, one of the things we haven't talked about at all, which is very important for understanding Putin, is the Soviet Union, and I know we have a lot of very kind of, to to us, young listeners, the Soviet Union is not anything like a nation state, and it doesn't even really see itself as an empire. So it's got 15 republics um, going all the way from Estonia. I mean, it's a mad state in many ways it's existed you know one form or another since the 20s but it's got going all the way from estonia to kind of tajikistan and the russians are about roughly about 50 percent of that you know the russian population and there has always been the issue of nationalism you know there's always been tensions in the caucasus in central asia in the baltics and so on and gorbachev has this idea that by basically devolving a lot of power to the republics. I mean, devolution, Tom, what could possibly go wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, de- devolving power to the republics, uh, that will invigorate the system. You know? But at the same time, he wants to open everything up so people can debate things more freely. So that will obviously give nationalism more room to sort of to flourish. Yeah. 
But he also look, combines that with an attack on what he sees as the corruption of the old elites. So the old elites are embattled. People are talking about new ideas, but they're also being given more power. The, the whole thing, it's a sort of, he, he creates unwittingly a kind of breeding ground for all these kind of nationalistic movements to thrive. And you see it as early as 1986. You see it in Kazakhstan and in the Baltics and in Ukraine, movements calling for new language rights and you know opposing power stations and all these kinds of things. So the seeds of trouble are there even after he's only been there a year. And Dominic, do we know what Putin is doing? Yes, during this we time? do. So this he's is in the, St. Petersburg still? No, no, this is the interesting thing. He's not. So around about the point where uh, Chernenko gave way to Gorbachev, where Gorbachev came into power, Vladimir Putin has has been he's been working for the KGB since the late seventies, and he has now been posted to Dresden, in East Germany. Oh, of course, he has. Yes, of course. So what he's doing, and he's yes. doing sort of slightly. It seems. There are different stories. Some people say he's just compiling information about dissidents. Some people say actually he's trying to sort of forge links with the sort of remnants of the Red Army faction, the Bader-Meinhof gang in West Germany. We don't know because, of course, it's secret. But what we know is he's watching all this from outside. So he has left a state that he thinks is powerful, you know, strong, respected in the world, high status. And he sees this guy ref trying to reform it, to change things. And that's really important, I think, that Putin is watching it from outside and f he's watching it, frankly, with horror. And he's in East Germany, which yeah. has a higher standard of living relative to the Soviet Union. It does indeed, yes. So he is alert to, presumably, some of the problems that the Soviet economy faces. Yes, I, I don't think... You asked if Putin was a communist. Um, he's certainly not a communist now and has not been since the fall of the U USSR. But what he is, is a believer in the Russian world in the russian yeah. sphere of influence and i yeah. think that's what's going to trouble him as we get into the late 80s and early 90s that that starts to fragment and fall apart well i think that's enough for today so that's the end of today's episode uh please join us tomorrow to hear about when things really start imploding for gorbachev in the late 80s and in due course for the soviet union itself we will see you tomorrow How are things basically on the ground in the USSR at this point? Is there a sense of optimism, of enthusiasm, or just kind of disinterest? Or what's the mood? So they're not going well. So Gorbachev is, um, I mean, this is such an immensely complicated story. Uh, and I, I'm trying to sort of simplify it as much as possible. So Gorbachev is slightly torn between two different camps. He has the, the re reformers who want him to go further faster. And he has... And, one of, and the leading reformer is, is this yet... Is Boris Yeltsin, has he yeah, taken on that mantle by this well, point? Should we talk about him? We can introduce Boris Yeltsin now. Now, we're going to do Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s in a subsequent podcast because it's such a complicated and, and huge story. And this is an absolutely fascinating thing because the relationship between these two men, I mean, this really is an example of individuals mattering in history, Tom, because uh, I think the relationship <laughs> between... It's so these, ironic, isn't it, in the context, it of, is, in the context of, of the Soviet Union. Um, the relationship between these two men and the way they don't get along is so crucial to this story. Had they got along the Soviet Union might well still exist. And the war wow, in Ukraine would a, not that's be that's a big... Well, so he's, br he's brought in by Gorbachev to be basically what? The kind of to run Moscow. Moscow. Exactly. He's been in a place called Sverdlovsk, which is now... which Well, it was called Sverdlovsk at the time, but it's Ekaterinburg. So it's the place so where, where the Romanovs... Where, yes, yeah. Yeah, in the, where the Romanovs were executed, in the, um, uh, in the Urals. Now, Yeltsin is a very different character from Gorbachev. Gorbachev is more idealistic and a kind of reader... 
and all that sort of stuff, and a committee man, a man who loves tinkering with constitutions. Yeltsin is, as we all know, he's a bullient, he's he's a populist. He likes a drink. He's he's great at glad handing the crowd. He can be a bit of a clab. He can be a bully. Um, he's this larger than life kind of imp- incredibly impulsive figure. Yeltsin wants them to go faster. In 1987. Um, so actually, round about the time they're celebrating the anniversary of the October Revolution, Yeltsin says, I've had enough. He's been attacked. He's very sort of sensitive, Yeltsin. So he's been attacked by hardliners, and he becomes the first person ever to resign from the Politburo. Mm-hmm. And um, Gorbachev is absolutely outraged by this, thinks this is terrible. Uh, and there's this sort of campaign against Yeltsin. Yeltsin, and this is not a story that's lost people in the West, I think, as familiar with this, they should be. Yeltsin tries to kill himself by stabbing himself in the chest with some scissors. Um, he's taken to hospital and basically when he's in hospital being pumped full of drugs uh, because people say he's gone mad and had a nervous breakdown uh, Gorbachev says you have to come to a, a party meeting a Moscow party meeting to be richly humiliated um, this is so Dostoevsky isn't and, it? and he is I mean they take they pump him full of drugs he comes out of hospital and he has to sit there while everybody else says Boris Nikolaevich you know you're a you're a capitalist running dog or whatever they're saying and um, he has to take it, and he never forgives Gorbachev. It's like the brothers Karamazov or something. It is. I mean, it is. And he's yeah. determined, of course, to get his revenge. And that plays such a big part. Yeltsin feels completely and utterly humiliated. So, so he's out of the Politburo. Yeah. But he's not being kicked out of politics. Communist Party. Yeah. So, so he's still lurking around. Yes, exactly. He's still in the Communist Party. He's still sort of drifting around in, in, um, in, in political life. Now... The economic reforms are not going well at all. So you get the queues. They've always been queues, but they're getting longer and longer. There are shortages in the shops. Um, There's also more and more problems in the other republics, kind of demonstrations and all this sort of stuff. And Dominic, is this both with Perestroika, so the reorganization, and Glasnost opening, is this because Gorbachev by 87, 88 is essentially, he's reached a, a kind of halfway house where he doesn't have the benefits of either Exactly, system. Tom. Exactly. I mean, how often have you seen this with kind of Roman emperors or with kings or medieval kings that they, you have to choose. And, and Gorbachev thinks I have to keep my sort of foot in both camps. He also, to his credit in some ways, he doesn't believe in violence. I mean, he, he virtually, he very rarely, there are examples in Georgia and most famously in Lithuania, where he uses troops to kind of repress uprisings. But by and large, he doesn't like doing it. And there are some historians, I mentioned Vladislav Zubok, who basically imply if he'd been tougher, more ruthless, if he'd accumulated more power instead of giving it away, and he'd been quicker to use the sort of forces of so law and order. he didn't do it, but he should have done it. Well, that's how a yes. leading yes. historian. That's, right. the, that's uh, me about, uh, the he of the should power. have been more Richard III. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But what Gorbachev does is he's been blocked and he says, well, the way to do it is to have even more democracy. So he has this massive thing called the Congress of People's Deputies, which he launches the plans for right. in the summer of 88. Is this akin to Charles I summoning a parliament back after you know, <laughs> the, the, the years of personal rule or Louis XVI summoning um, people to... Yeah, to, the States General. The, the States General to... Yeah. It has a bit of that, I suppose. The, I mean, the Congress of People's Deputies is absolutely enormous. They're going to have like 2,000, I think it's 2,250 members. Um, and from that, that will choose a Supreme Soviet and he will also be personally elected for the first time as president, not as general secretary. So it's a way of kind of bypassing the party. It is, but but it's properly democratic, right? 
I mean, there's a, a proper democratic element in a system that hasn't had a democratic element like that for exactly. a very, very long time. So dissidents time. are elected. There are kind of nationalist figures from the Baltic states. There are people like Andrei Sakharov, the dissident scientist, very famous kind of figure in the West at this point. And there's Yeltsin. And there's Yeltsin, exactly. So, and, and, but Tom, what happens is it's also on telly. It's oh, on TV. And this is the first time this has ever happened. And the BBC did a brilliant documentary about this many years ago. I, I, I can't for the life of me remember what it's called. Um, and you can only see it on sort of very obscure websites because it's basically, it was a brilliant kind of five. If you like TV series about committees, this is the one for you. <laughs> right. Um, so it's a sort of documentary and um, they have all the sort of the footage. And it's basically people are, you know, people arguing. On, on platforms, people standing up in the podium and saying, you know, we don't have enough food or this is a shambles. Boris is right about this. The general secretary is right about that. People I mean, never, ever, isn't it? I people mean, never there, did there that. There is an element of yeah, that. Yeah, there is. I think there probably is. People never did that. In the, and it contributes to this sense of, I think for a lot of Soviet citizens, just confusion. You know, what's going on? People arguing. Some people are delighted by the openness, but a lot of people are just confused by it. And of course, what... What makes it more toxic is that it's against the background of this, you know, the system now has broken, the interfering with the economic system has contributed to a situation where in 1989, in most parts of Russia, you now actually have meat rationing. There is no sugar. The, 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 the factories, the fields and the collectives, they're, they're no longer supplying the shops in the cities with what they need. But against that, by this point, you can read the Gulag Archipelago, can you not? You can indeed. Yeah, you so can. This is the great yeah, but a lot of dissident work by Solzhenitsyn. By Solzhenitsyn. But of course, a lot of people don't. This is the thing with... with and them. of course, they don't want to read it. I mean, you'd rather have a, have a steak or something. Yeah, they'd rather have some meat. But also, Tom, a lot of people, if you've been brought up to think one way all this time, and then you're suddenly told, well, what you thought was a lie, you know, I mean, there's a very famous article published in 1988, which causes a huge hullabaloo by a woman called Nina Andreeva, um, very well known to kind of Soviet historians, where she basically says, stop attacking Stalin. You because know, it's stop, Stalin, right? So you said lying about our history, this kind of, you know, these wokists tearing down statues. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Because you said that uh, for Gorbachev, it's all about Lenin. Yeah. And so therefore, Stalin is cast as Stalin essentially bad the baddie, guy. the guy yeah. who had come in and ruined it. Uh you know, real communism hasn't been tried. That, that this argument. idea that, you know, what we've been living has been a bit of a lie and we've taken a wrong turn and we need to... A lot of people are just really... They're offended and upset and disturbed by that. They don't want yeah. to hear it. And, and yeah. of course, it's easier to hear that when you can have some sugar. If there's no tea, yeah. no milk... I mean, what is it? Uh, 1989, 1990, in, in Moscow, that winter, is no milk, no tea, no coffee, no soap. Meat is rationed. You need to get to the shop at kind of when it opens. All of this. And against that background, people think, well, this is all going horribly wrong. So that's why, by the way, when the, the Berlin Wall falls and the Eastern Europe, why there's so little Russian reaction. It's partly because Gorbachev doesn't believe in using force. It's partly because he's idealistic and he thinks, well, they'll stay in the socialist camp because it's obviously a nicer kind of kinder, more touchy-feely camp than the capitalist West. It's also because he and the others are so absorbed with their own colossal colossal problems and where is putin so putin is still in dresden putin is famously in dresden okay. uh when um uh he burns his files supposedly when the berlin wall falls he says to somebody um you know we need to do something and the guy says well we can't do anything without orders from moscow and he says um some line what is it? he says uh moscow is silent 
or something like Moscow says nothing, you know, and, and for Putin, he later on says of, um, he says, supposedly after he becomes president, he says to some of his men, Russian history has produced two really bad, incompetent leaders. They were Nicholas II and Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev because they were weak. They were weaklings. Whereas his and, two great heroes are, are Peter the Great and Stalin. Yeah. Well, I mean, that tells you what mm. you need to know. Basically, don't rent your house out to Vladimir Putin, as we discovered in our <laughs> parties podcast, because he'd smash it up, as like he's smashing up Ukraine. Right. So we're into 1990 now, um, Tom. So the Warsaw Pact basically has drifted off. Has drifted off. Russia is moving towards this. The Soviet Union is moving towards this kind of multi-party politics. Industry is in a state of collapse. A lot of Gorbachev's sort of more reform-minded allies have deserted him because they think he's not going fast enough. But crucially, what's happening now is that the party elites and the people who run the, the, the state enterprises in the different republics are now beginning to think, you know, I don't want Gorbachev in a sort of shambolic interference in my affairs. And maybe I should be riding the tiger of kind of nationalism. So you start to see, I mean, obviously, you get the upsurge of nationalism in the Baltic states, because they remember you know, that they were basically snatched by Stalin and they want their freedom. But other in other republics now, the nationalism is becoming more and more of a thing. And, and also I, within Russia itself. And also, well, this is the fascinating thing. Boris Yeltsin has become the, becomes in the, um, uh, the spring of 1990, he becomes the elected leader of Russia. So Russia is 50 plus percent of the Soviet population. And like a lot of these republics, they're starting to declare their own sovereignty. They're saying, well, we are actually sovereign. We're not just kind of provinces of a Soviet system. We have our own, you know, our own personality, our own kind of legal, we're legal entities in our own right. So Yeltsin, basically reformer, he's capitalizing on people's frustration at the queues and stuff and their frustration with corruption and all these kinds of things. Yeltsin basically establishes Russia as a as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. So for the for the first time you get the sense I think 1991 of almost kind of parallel parallel governments. They're competing so, for advisors, they can have different economic programs, all of this kind of stuff. And there's a lightning rod for that isn't there in um uh in Vilnius. Yeah. So Vilnius is when he does use violence. That's the the exception. Gorbachev does. Gorbachev does. So the And and Yeltsin opposes it and Yeltsin basically says to the Russian troops in the Baltic states, don't use violence. Yeah, so I think Yeltsin is much more of a kind of would let them go. Um, Gorbachev um, is torn. He he believes in the Soviet Union. Um, he doesn't want to see anybody, anybody leave the Soviet Union. He hates violence, but he's persuaded to use troops against the TV station of Vilnius, and they kill 15 people. Um, and it's against that kind of background. So you get So you've got economic meltdown. You have... A loss of political authority. You have the sort of the public bewildered and stuff that that um, Gorbachev says. Well, listen. I mean, I've, I, he's messed around with the constitution so much already, um, but he says, uh, you know, a new change. We're going to have a new union treaty. So, replacing kind of 1922, um, which we talked about in our 1922 podcast at the beginning of the year, we're going to have a new union treaty, and that'll be signed in August. All the republics will sign it, and it's basically signing up to a new model. More slightly more decentralized model of the Soviet Union, kind of it's like we're reaffirming our vows, basically. Mm -hmm. um, now that's against the background. In that that summer, 
there is a total kind of collapse in the in the economy. So industry collapses by 18%, agriculture by 17%. They're running a massive deficit now. They can't import, afford to import consumer goods. At that point, there is a, a, a road not taken, um, which you sometimes hear talk about in, in the West. So there is talk in the summer of 1991 of George Bush Sr.'s administration intervening with a kind of Marshall Plan for the Soviet Union. And I think there is a case that this is the a great what if. Because um, there's a so guy. What called, would have happened? Well, there's a guy called Grigory Levlinsky, who's a Russian reformer, and he cooks up a scheme with a Harvard academic called Graham Ellison, and that's basically to lend the Soviet Union billions, of, or to give the Soviet Union billions of dollars, um, and establish them as a partner, so that Gorbachev to, to basically bail Gorbachev out. And Bush says no, it, um, Congress won't back it. We're not in the business of flushing money down the drain, which is what will happen. You know, the Soviet Union is a communist country. What are we doing? All this kind of stuff. They don't do it. What would have happened, who can say, Tom? I mean, maybe, I, I think Gorbachev had lost so much political authority by that point already that actually that would have been money down the drain, brutally. Yeah. Um, certainly wouldn't have saved, I don't think it would have saved Gorbachev. Probably wouldn't. might not have saved the Soviet Union either. But it might have cushioned Russia's transition to democracy. Okay, let's take a quick break there uh, and we will see you after some ads or not after some ads if you are members of our The Rest is History Club. Whatever whatever format you're listening, we will be back with you very soon. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. Gorbachev is trying, struggling to keep the Soviet Union together. Does Yeltsin have a feeling it would be better for Russia to get rid of all these kind of various deadbeats as he sees them, these appendages to Mother Russia. Is that his attitude? Some people may think, listening to this, may think, gosh, this has got a bit of kind of a United Kingdom um, sort of arguments about devolution and and, uh, Scottish or Welsh independence kind of vibe to it. Um, Because definitely there are people now in Russia for the first time who are sort of saying, do we need all these Islamic republics in Central Asia? You know, they're just... The problem, though, is that 25 million Russian speakers live outside Russia. I mean, that's the context for the world we're living in now, that um, it's a bit like, you know, Germany. Um, yeah. We'll get into this in the next podcast about the we Weimar yeah. Republic parallels, but there's, that is a problem. Uh, but Yeltsin is, I think Yeltsin, the, the sense I get from the, a lot of the books on this is that Yeltsin is completely fixated on his rivalry with Gorbachev. And he's not thinking kind of particularly strategically about Russia's future in the next 20 or 30 years. He's thinking, how can I establish myself as, as, the, as the sort of primus inter pares instead of, instead of Gorbachev? But Dominic, it's not just Gorbachev against Yeltsin, is it? Because there are also, lurking in the background, communist hardliners. Yeah. And in August 1991, they launch basically an incredibly incompetent coup. Yeah. But I, I remember in, uh, uh, walking through London and seeing a kind of newspaper billboard saying coup in Moscow and th- thinking, oh, God. Yeah. Um, again, because a bit like the headlines at the moment, um, this was a headline that could have come from an alternative reality novel in which, uh, you know, the world gets blown up or something. So I, being very nervous. I'm a bit younger than you. My mum my woke me up to tell me the news um, sort of first thing in the morning. So that was uh, Gorbachev being arrested in his dacha, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he'd gone. Well, he'd gone to Foros in the Crimea, where he went on holiday. And um, one day, so it's two days actually before they they signed, they're going to sign the union, new union treaty. And the hardliners think this will give away so much power forever, and we'll never get it back. 
So they cut off his telephones. They pitch up. They they kind of basically want him to resign. He doesn't want to do it. They form a state emergency committee. As you say, it's a complete shambles. They don't arrest Yeltsin. They don't take control of communications. They don't can take control of the Russian streets. And Yeltsin has his moment in history. I mean, they've handed it to him on a platter. And he seizes it with this, because we said before he was in it, it's a bullion populist character. I mean, anyone who lived through this will remember those incredible scenes. You know, Yeltsin gets on a tank. He, he, he commandeers a tank. There's amazing photos. The tank driver's got his head in his hands because, you know, he's basically been humiliated. Yeltsin has seized his tank. There's a great crowd around him. He reads a proclamation in which he says, you know, this is a coup of reactionaries and all this. Um, he, he, he he takes possession of the Russian par the Russian Parliament building, not the Soviet, not the building of the you know the of, of the and the Kremlin, but a building called the White House. Ironically, the Russian yes. Parliament, <laughs> um, and the, and for a couple of days it looks like the coup plotters are going to storm the White House and kill Yeltsin, but they n- don't have the guts. They're all absolutely hammered, uh, or shaking, or just sort of sweating and gibbering in their various offices. Um, they don't have a plan. Yeah, they don't have a heavy uniform. So, yeah. yeah. Well, they're, they're actually, if you look at the, the footage, I always remember the footage. The, the leader was a guy called Gennady Yanayev, and he was shaking when he read – well, he was the front man. He wasn't the leader. He, he was shaking when he read his proclamation. And they were all wearing the most terrible suits. I mean, mm. those suits in themselves are a very bad advert for the Soviet yeah. system. Um, supposedly, this is the moment when Putin resigned from the KGB. I mean, I say resigned. I mean, there's a question about whether he ever left – the KGB, um, but later in his sort of uh, his sort of you know his as it were official biography, it was claimed that this was the point where he broke with communism, uh, Putin. But but I mean whether that's true, none of us to can... to side with Yeltsin. Yes, well we'll 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 get into how Putin and Yeltsin form their relationship in the in the next podcast. Um, but yes. It's it's just impossible to say what Putin's position on all this is. I mean, my sense is, but he's he, not there at the White House with no, 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 Yeltsin no. on the no. Tank or I mean, he's, he's not watching a, from a he's watching from the distance. Yes, he is watching from a distance. So okay, right. Gorbachev, the, the coup plotters lose their nerve. Gorbachev returns from the Crimea, and then we talked about the humiliation for Yeltsin. Now it's it's his turn, his chance to turn the tables. And um, you know, again, incredible that this was played out live on television. He basically. Um, gets Gorbachev to to a meeting of the Russian Supreme Soviet, uh, so to so the basically the government that Yeltsin controls, and he says, you know, lie in front. Of, he says, here's a list of all the people, your aides, your appointees who collaborated in the coup. Read it out, and he makes Gorbachev read it out in front of this audience, terribly humiliating. And then Yeltsin just suddenly has the momentum. He bans the Communist Party in Russia. He says, we're going to move to a market economy, you know, immediately. We're going to have, you know, shock therapies looming. Nobody knows what that means at this point. But he says, you know, I have the economic sort of medicine that will fix the, the, what's gone wrong. alternative. Yes, very Thatcherite. Uh, but at the same time, this is the point when the various republics start to go their own way. So Yeltsin says, yeah, fine, let the Baltic states go. Um, the, the real question is Ukraine. So the leader in Ukraine, a man called Leonid Kravchuk, is the classic example of somebody who all his life has just been a complete apparatchik. And now, see, you know, he doesn't want, he wants to hold on to his power. He wants to hold on to control with his mates of the state enterprises and stuff. And so he jumps onto the Ukrainian um, nationalist bandwagon. He declares Ukrainian sovereignty and he declares a referendum for the 1st of December 1991. Um, why does he do this? 
the answer is, I think, because he he looks at those two people, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, and you think if Gorbachev wins, Gorbachev will will, will sort of, you know, uh, Kravchuk had, had equivocated during the, the coup. He thinks if Gorbachev wins, Gorbachev will, will basically, you know, it's not good for us. He'll mess with us and our system and our privileges and stuff and our control of all this stuff. If Yeltsin, you know, I don't want to be stuck with Yeltsin commandeering it for Russia and sort of, you know, him taking it over. So the best thing is basically we take it over ourselves and we'll control it ourselves. And I think a lot of the – so if you look at the first post-independence leaders in all those Soviet republics in Central Asia and so on, they're all the people generally who are running the Communist Party in those places before. And this, the same thing happens in Belarus, right? Exactly. And, and, and Yeltsin and the Belarus and uh, Ukrainian leaders all meet up in a – In a wood. Hunting lodge. Yeah, in a forest. Yeah. In the forest in uh, in Belarus. Yes. Yeah, so they go to um, a place called Belaveja. Um, as you know, Tom, I'm, I'm, I've been to Belarus myself. Yes, I'm um, great admirer of its chocolate. So they meet up, and they basically, the, the leaders of these three republics, behind Gorbachev's back, they sign a deal. They'll all become independent. They'll have a very loose association called the Commonwealth of Independent States. And, you know, that's it. Bang goes the Soviet Union. Nobody in the Soviet Union, by and large, well, 20% of the people in the Soviet Union want this. 80% do not want this. So this is not happening as a result of massive public protests it's not happening because after years of you know mounting sort of passions and 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 street violence it's happening largely because of rivalries and desire for self-protection among different parts of the of the soviet elite well we talked about the collapse of the roman empire and the way that um it you know in the west in the fifth century chunks of it start splitting off yeah. because uh, local bigwigs start to appreciate that they're likely to have more authority, more wealth, more position if they go independent. And you're essentially saying that's much the same thing is happening in the Soviet it is, Union. I, it is. It is actually a, re, a remarkably it's I mean, kind of, course, of barons carving up territory. It is barons carving up territory. Interestingly, I was just reading this this book today, the Zubot book, Collapse. He says uh, he has stuff in that that I'd not seen before. There are people around Yeltsin who say to him that December 1991. You, are you just going to go and say yes to the Ukrainian guy? What about Crimea? What about Donbass? I mean, they literally say these places. And he says, oh, I'll pro I may mention it, yeah. And he doesn't mention it because he's just so keen to get one over on Gorbachev. And that's the reason, not because he's drunk. Well, there is a bit of drinking. <laughs> yeah, there, is, there definitely is a bit of drinking. And actually, at that meeting, I think there was some talk of Kelton having it carried out. Yeah. <laughs> Not having to be carried out, but yeah, it's easy to stereotype Yeltsin. I mean, Yeltsin is a is a tremendous politician as a as a populist, as a communicator and stuff. And he has had this sort of very stressful time, and he has been very brave. But you're right, there is the there is always the issue of the drink. He's so fixated, I think, on beating Gorbachev. So they get it's back. A, it's such an amazing psychodrama, and it's, it is like, actually someone should write a you know do a film or a I know, play and about the, and, it. The, and the fate of mil you know hundreds yeah. of millions of people hangs on this they get back he gets they get back to moscow and they basically gorbachev's like what and they say yeah the soviet union is no more we've decided to leave and then of course everybody else decides to leave as well and they say oh we'll join this new commonwealth of independent states um and that's well the cool kids have moved on basically gorbachev is there in the kremlin no one listens to him the army have stopped listening to him the interior ministry troops don't listen to him the police yeah, don't it's listen like romulus to him. augustulus it is exactly that tom we did this story on the 12 days of christmas podcast on the 25th of december 1991 that's the day that gorbachev resigns as president of the ussr 
that the flag comes down, the hammer and sickle is replaced by the Russian tricolor on the sort of Kremlin flagpole. That's the day the Soviet Union ends and the Russian Federation comes into existence. And we did this on our 12 Days of History podcast. But the worst thing about it is not actually the, the well-known fact that Gorbachev was filmed by American cameramen and he had to borrow a pen from the CNN producer to sign his a resignation. capitalist pen. A capitalist pen. There's actually a worse fact than, than that, which I didn't mention on that last podcast, which is that there's a ceremony where he basically hands over the nuclear briefcase to, um, to Boris Yeltsin or gives it to somebody to give to Yeltsin. But actually, in secret, they'd already switched the briefcases. So oh. Gorbachev thought at the end of that he was walking around with the nuclear briefcase, but he wasn't. It had been taken away from him behind his back already. God, and yeah. um, don't piss off the cool guys. And uh, yeah, so to go back to Putin, Putin is back in Russia. Um, he watches this with with horror. For him, as he later says, the collapse of the Soviet Union, he's called it the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. And it is an extraordinary moment because at a stroke, the empire that had been inherited by the communists from the czars fragments. Um, the 15 yeah. republics go their own way. Suddenly, there is this nation state called Russia that has, that's, has 88 different federal subjects in it. So it has lots of Muslims. It has Chechens, Tatars, Tuvans, all kinds of people in the kind of um, in the in the steppes and the forests of the east. And suddenly, it's a nation state that feels like it's lost colossal amount of status, and also has lots of its citizens outside its borders. Lots of people who maybe either think they're Russian or yeah. or speak Russian. Exactly. Okay. Well, so what a dramatic moment! Um, the Soviet Union has come to an end. Russia has been born. Yeltsin has replaced Gorbachev. Putin is kind of swimming in the shallows like a a kind of baby shark waiting to taste a bit more blood. And uh, I think we should leave it there. And tomorrow's episode, we should see what happens under Yeltsin and how it is that Putin ends up becoming president. See you again tomorrow. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 